Welcome to the Mental Health in Schools podcast, designed and delivered by Anna Bateman, founder of Halcyon Education. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Halcyon Education podcasts. In this episode, I'm joined by Emma Spillane, who will be sharing practical ideas on how to support pupils who have experienced trauma. First, a quick word from our sponsors. CPOMS is an online system for schools to manage pastoral concerns and events now used by over 10,000 schools. The main reason it works so well is that the categories of information school logs on CPOMS are chosen by the school, so that the concerns you face that are more unique to your community or individuals can be logged accordingly. It saves a huge amount of time compared to doing things on paper. Chronologies for pupils or school-wide reports can be generated quickly. The Service Point support team provide an incredible standard of service and are one of the main reasons CPOMs spread by word of mouth to so many schools. For more information, go to www.cpoms.co.uk where you can also book a demo for your school. Now to the podcast. Right, so I'm thrilled to be joined today by Emma Spillane. So Emma works with schools and parents to help them understand how to support vulnerable pupils with a particular focus on attachment and trauma. And I'm really thrilled that she's going to be sharing some of her insights and her wisdom and her knowledge today about the whole school, but also breaking down really into how that might play out into for individual pupils as well. So Emma, it's great to have you here. I'm just curious about how you got into this area and to tell us a little bit more about yourself too. Thank you for having me here. I will just give you a little potted version of how I've come to be where I am today. It feels like quite the journey. And that's because I started out in teaching and I've done quite a lot else since. And I feel like I've kind of come back full circle. So I'm a trained primary school teacher and have a few years of experience of working in a primary classroom and as a music lead. And I also have experience of some working in secondary. So I kind of bring a little bit of experience from both worlds into my work now. But it was actually becoming an adoptive parent that kind of was a key turning point for me. So at the time I'd gone freelance from working in higher education. I've done, I've got some experience of working in higher education as well. But I'd gone freelance and I was doing some work to fit around going through the adoption process, which is, as you can imagine, quite involved. Um, I needed some headspace and some time away from education and just things generally. And it's that journey through adoption and through realising just what my children have needed. I've learned so much from parenting them and living this life 24-7 with children who have experienced trauma and early adversity. And kind of just taking what I've learned from them, from working with them, from working with schools, from therapeutic parenting from working with my kids in therapy and just bringing all of that together and now going out and training schools kind of starting where I going back to where I started back to my roots which was back in the classroom which is a comfortable place for me still it still feels a good a nice place to be but I'm coming at it from a very different angle now. Mm. And certainly, I guess, coming at it from an angle of, as you said, having those experiences of being an adoptive parent. And I know having having done courses with the Fostering Adoption Service and listened to John Timpson as well. So if anybody listening gets to listen to John Timpson and his experiences of, you know, having children who 
have have they fostered and adopted it is just a phenomenal journey isn't it and and you have to learn very quickly about trauma and what's going to help your child that you love dearly and and so, so I think it's wonderful that you're able to then bring that into your training and blend the education aspect and your personal aspect for schools you know I'm sure that's going to be a benefit massively and it is benefit to schools we know, don't we, that from a government perspective at the moment, there's a real push and they're almost leveraging the opportunity post-pandemic to really focus on mental health. So there's a senior mental health lead training and guidance that's come out from the DfE. So looking at this whole school approach. And one of those areas that's a real key focus for them, isn't it, is the ethos and environment in which children thrive and learn. And relating this to an emotionally safe environment where children can thrive and learn so I was just wondering, with all your experience now, what advice, support or ideas do you have for schools to create this emotionally safe environment? Because it's not something that senior leaders, teachers have had training on. It's not part of that, is it? It's not something we do in PGCE or in a, a degree. No, it, it, I mean, it was a while ago I, I finished my PGCE, but it certainly was not a thing in a PGCE at the point, in that point in time. And I could still be in the classroom teaching. So, you know, further down the line in my career. So I completely understand that teachers haven't received this training. But for me, a lot of it is around, it's around the approach, like you say, the whole school approach. It's about framing things differently. It's probably the biggest starting point. And learning and being willing to learn and engage and be curious, I think, are key yeah. things. But I have kind of picked out three things just for today because I knew we'd be talking around this subject and I have three and a half hours worth of content on how to start creating this environment. So I've picked out three things. So this is not an exclusive list of things for schools to do, but it's a starting point for some for consideration. Absolutely. That's, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. So point one really is, is looking at transition times throughout the day and unstructured times during the day. So it's really, really common for children who struggle with emotional regulation to navigate those particular times. So they seem like obvious points in the day to a further bit of thinking around it if, if that's a particular struggle. So beginnings and ends of days and break times will be especially key, but also moving between activities and between lessons. So they are also need to be seen. Every transition during the day can be quite significant. And around that, it's about things like making sure that there are proper check-ins, that a meet and greet is done, if it's at the door or if it's as, as a child walks into class. That welcoming and that initial connection can be really, really vital to a child who maybe is feeling disconnected. It's, it, it's bringing them in, it's welcoming, it's noticing, it's, it's that being curious, it's I yeah. see you, it's all I of I see that. you, yes, that's the phrase, isn't it? I see you. It's that yeah. I see you. And for children who need to be seen because they don't understand or haven't developed that sense of being kept in mind, those things are really, really important. So that's a quick win because if you've seen them before they need to be seen, then you're in. <laughs> Also, things like the settling, settling in activities. So again, this is things that a lot of schools already do, but it's just really thinking about settling in activities that are very, very simple, clear and consistent. So there's no kind of room for people not knowing what they're doing. The pupil that disengages quite quickly, finding something that really hits the mark for them that they can manage without lots of support for just that couple of minutes when they come in. Things like 
maybe introducing gratitude as a settling in exercise at the beginning of every morning is a again a really powerful way to settle into the day in a way that we know supports our regulation and it can be really really good for bringing our prefrontal cortexes online if perhaps they're not we've really got to hone in on well what is it we're truly grateful for today it's just a way to focus in on a good positive thing even when there's other stuff going on and that mm. those things i've put ideas on my website in my blog for this but you can be doing that at all different levels of ages so you've got journaling for maybe older children who can who can manage that you so they may have got a journal every morning you could be doing it with pictures you could be cutting out things you could be sticking pictures from magazines for younger children what is it we're grateful for find a picture do it stick it in your book today really simple ways of doing that whole whole classroom displays with everybody putting something they're grateful for on a display we'll do that for a week so there are ways to engage that whole idea of gratitude or something different as a settling in activity that's really positive and very regulating and nurturing things like calming music in the background i mean that's something that i think is really really underestimated or it's something i just didn't think about when i was teaching and now i think oh gosh i'd really i'd really go for that the same sort of consistent feel that when you walk into the room there's something in the background and it's calming and it's that again is powerful so yeah we're looking at the vagus nerve and getting into polyvagal theory and that kind of thing it, the music is brilliant for all of that so <laughs> that's a, a potential thing choosing to do as an activity a guided visualization for five minutes these things don't have to be long they don't have to be intense but they can be very very good at regulating and creating a consistent mood at the beginning of a, of a day again I've, I've just started putting some of those things on my spotify channel that can be accessed by people coming into the classroom for children and adults <laughs> and some breath work as well breath work's a nice simple thing that you can do first thing in the morning as a as a starter for 10 that takes two minutes yes just different ways not we're in we're working that's it boom off uh, that's that's not kind of setting the tone for a calm session <laughs> for a lot of people so th these are just things to consider they're not going to work for everybody but but give them a go if you haven't already. <laughs> yeah. And Emma, is some of the theory that sits behind this, obviously we've talked about this idea of I see you, the importance of sense of belonging, a connection that somebody mm. is thinking of you and cares about you, but the, the music, the breath works, yes. is that about reconnecting into the prefrontal cortex? So the thinking part of the brain rather than being in fight and flight, is that, is that the theory behind it? that is yeah that's part of the theory behind it it's these are grounding tools at the end right. of the day we're looking to ground and as you've alluded to if children in fight flight freeze submit whatever you want to give the last bit of that <laughs> that long-winded explanation of the, the threat response this is about re-engaging that prefrontal cortex and it's a way to take out of that response and to unless children are feeling safe this is my point unless children are feeling safe so they're not in that fight flight freeze then that that learning can't happen anyway so this is just about trying to bring them into a space where they're feeling grounded and where they can access that part of the brain for learning as we've alluded to at the beginning this isn't included in any training and yet it's a really really fundamental part of, of, of engagement and learning isn't it yeah absolutely, absolutely. and you're it's not like you have to know every part of the brain, the name of every part of the brain. It's as simple as if a child's showing distressing behaviour and they're in fight, flight, freeze, fawn, 
mode, then clearly they're not in the mode for learning. It's mm. as simple as that. And they need support to come back into a space where they're feeling grounded. Yeah. That's as simple as it is. And actually doing it's a whole other thing, obviously, but knowing that is really, really important. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. So some really good, useful tips there about transition and about, you know, getting children into that grounded space for learning. Yeah, just just to add on that, actually, just to add to that, it's it would be really, really negligent of me not to mention the grounding of the adults in the room as part of the grounding of the children in the room, because we cannot co-regulate. And at the end of the day, we're there as co-regulators. It's part of our job, whether we realise it or not. As teachers, we have a duty to ground ourselves in order to support our pupils with grounding as well. And I would also say transition points are a really nice anchoring point throughout the day to do some of that breath work ourselves and with the children. So it becomes an exercise you do together and it's a good modeling as well. If you're doing it at the same time, all of it um, can only, only be really positive. So yeah, use those mm. times, even if it's to take two or three very deep breaths at the point at which children are going in and out of class. Those are the times you can really use to help with grounding yourself. And I think that's just as important. What, what, a, what a really helpful point to make because school is a stressful environment and mm. the adults in the environment can make or shape that, mm. can't they? So if you can be calm and it's very difficult when you've got so many pressures and so many things in your own mind that you're having to try and remember to do, that just stopping and taking just a few moments to, to ground yourself can make a difference massively. To you and to everyone around you. And I think it's that ripple effect, isn't it? It's really important. And I spoke to a teacher yesterday who's, it, she said it's been full on since day one being back. And her, her words were great because actually that's kind of what helped me think, yeah, I really need to make this point strongly tomorrow. She said, I, I, have, I don't feel like from the second the kids come in to the second they leave, I can catch a breath. Mm. And it's that, right, use that, <laughs> take those words and understand how important they are because you know how that feels at the end of the day when you haven't done it. <laughs> yeah. And the kids, she said the kids get more out of control and like more challenging and it gets more difficult and push comes to shove. The more she can catch a breath, the more likely it is things will feel settled around her. <laughs> mm, absolutely. You and I are both taught in primary cups of tea just go cold all the time. <laughs> And you don't even have time for a wee. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. So, yeah, absolutely. Not being able yep. to breathe. What a, what a great point. Yeah, breathe. That's fundamental. Now a short break to hear from our sponsors. Stamps by Post is a family-run business and a Royal Mail licensed provider of postage stamps to schools, charities and businesses. So whether you're a small rural school or a large multi-academy trust, you can have your stamps delivered straight to your door instead of visiting the post office. And when you order before 4pm, they're dispatched the same day via the first-class post. Stamps by Post have been providing customers with a first-class service now for over 25 years. To find out more or to place an order in just a few clicks, go to www.stampsbypost.com. Now back to the podcast. So you've mentioned there were some other things that you thought would schools would benefit from understanding. And, and what I love about this, Emma, is, is it's all grounded in research. I'm often talking to schools about sometimes we, we end up in situations where there's somebody who's really good at marketing 
and can market something to a school when actually there's no research that, that it's going to work. Brain Gym was one of those, for example, that we remember back in the day where you got children to do certain things with their hands and touch their heads in certain ways. And that was supposed to actually help them to learn. And there was no research behind it whatsoever. Just really good marketing. You know, and yeah. I think what's so important about the work that you do and what you're sharing is it's all grounded in research. It's all evidence based. And we know that there are reasons why grounding and music and breathing and connection are important for all children, but also for those children who have experienced trauma and have multiple adverse childhood experiences. So it's really it's it's great. This is all grounded in, in the research, too. Yeah, absolutely. Actually doing some a diploma at the moment in working with complex trauma and PTSD and it's just it's helping in terms of you know sometimes you think oh am I getting this right am I getting this right because sometimes it feels like when you're you're out there talking to schools and they're saying we can't do it this way we can't do it that way and you're holding firm and thinking no this it has to be done this way we have to look at things differently Yes. When you then go back and you keep going, and I study in different ways, I read all the time, I read books, I research, I keep in touch with stuff on a daily basis, and it does keep coming back to the same messages. This is absolutely, absolutely. the right way to do things. Absolutely. Just going to keep holding that belief. <laughs> absolutely. And also, you've got, you've got that lived experience 24-7 as well with your yeah. own children. So you're yeah. almost using the research yourself every day and yeah. seeing the benefit. Absolutely. So the second thing I thought worth raising today was around just looking at the number of adults involved in working with pupils throughout the week and just seeking to minimise that as much as possible. Now, this is always a difficult one to raise in conversation with schools because I do appreciate there are different implications for managing staff resource differently. We've got lots of maybe job shares, part-time working, one-to-ones, EHCPs, which demand that certain members of staff need to be in certain places. And it does, it, it can be a headache. I appreciate that totally from the school perspective. But the emphasis at the end of the day, push comes to shove, is that we need to be building on creating quality relationships with adults, with children, rather than just filling hours with lots of different members of staff. <laughs> that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Just to give you an example, I worked with a, a school on a child who, well, he was age six. This is going back a couple of years ago now. And he was at risk of exclusion. There were lots of challenging behaviours. He was coming out of class a lot. He was being sent home. And the first thing we did was looked at his timetable. And the number of staff involved in supporting him just jumped off the page. And I think what happened was school was saying, well, he needs support all the time, one-to-one. -one. So we've got this team of about five teaching assistants who rotate with him all day, every day. <laughs> five adults coming and going oh. all day, every day. And to them, they were covering the support because he was getting the one-to-one, -one, which was amazing. They were looking to do that. But that what they were missing was the fact that that one-to-one -one support was so limited in the way that your attachment do not trust adults as a, as a kind of a bottom line. And you need to work hard to build up that trust and that takes time. And you cannot be doing that if you're constantly in and out, in and out, in and out. So this child, I said, the first thing we need to do is just minimise that and look at ways we can do that and take it from there. As, and that is as basic as it can be sometimes. It's just let's reduce the amount of stress that this child may be experiencing purely from the amount of adults that they have to deal with each day that they don't know. 
And then in order, in, in terms of building relationships, just thinking, well, how are we going to do that? And I do, I do still come back to it and I still, we use it a lot at home, but it's the Dan Hughes pace approach. And I know it's therapeutic parenting approach, but the playfulness, acceptance, curiosity, and empathy goes a long way in terms of any attachment relationships. And that's, that relates to school just as well as it does to home, in my opinion. Mm. Um, so it's, it's that consistency and that acceptance of the child and and building key relationships where possible yeah absolutely that level of curiosity and empathy which i think if we asked any member of staff in school they would say mm. of course you know that they're, they're there for mm. the children yeah. they have empathy they care very deeply but in the busyness of the day and having to get through what we have to get through sometimes that can get missed can't it that level of curiosity and empathy that's needed when a child is particularly challenging it was a school in Scotland I've talked about this before that actually stopped calling it challenging behavior and called it distressed mm. behavior and yeah. actually just completely changes the way that you then either lean in to the child if it's if they're distressed well of course I'm going to support this child if they're challenging yeah. me I, I lean back and I back away yeah I'm just in that ch- change of language and approach when we're being presented with with behaviour that is quite distressing ourselves or it provokes a bit of anger or frustration in in us as educators to to have the empathy to understand what's going on it's 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 tricky but really really important isn't it yeah I think probably that that pause and a breath it comes in useful there as well and that flips that narrative that it just then flips it to that empathy and curiosity doesn't it yeah. I want to learn actually and understand why this child is so distressed mm. and understand you know know that I can can do something to help them yeah adding layers of adults to a child who's distressed and struggling to attach or is looking for attachment and connection and is desperately seeking for that connection and then when you've got multiple adults coming and going all the time it Mm. like you said isn't it wonderful the school was providing that opportunity for the child but actually was possibly making things worse without realizing and that's why it's so important to have training from people like yourself on trauma and attachment to understand that yeah you know they won't have done that on purpose it's just no that's why i said i knew yeah you could see they were they were really worried about this child and they couldn't understand they were trying to do everything possible, but they, they were missing just a few of those things in their need to quickly make sure he had somebody there all the time rather than really thinking about what the quality of that looked like. Yeah. But it, I'm just thinking, you know, with primary, I think it's a little bit easier. I wouldn't say it's always easy to manage this. My children are in a particularly big school and there's lots of teaching staff and they manage things differently. So it's been a bit of a challenge sometimes talking with them about this but it's a little bit easier generally in primary because you tend to have one class teacher one main base one or two teaching assistants i think it's it is much harder for secondary settings Mm. to implement something where they're minimizing the numbers of staff but i think it's still just it's such an important consideration and there are ways I know that, that secondary schools are looking to restructure things so that they limit the number of staff that maybe year groups are, are having access to over a couple of yeah. years. So they get a bit more consistency or the number of buildings that they're having to go to. Maybe they're kind of sectioning off. This is this is lower school and this is upper school now. So they've got different sections of the school to navigate, but not all of it. 
I think there are things happening which yeah. fills me with joy, but it's still it's hard. It's not easy, but we're kind of fighting a system in some ways that that's been in place for such a long time and isn't fit for purpose. So we're having to work with that and be creative now. Yeah. And you've mentioned the physical environment there. So I know that was something else that you were going to share. And I'm curious, curious even to, to know what that might be. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is really simple, actually, but it's a case for me of, of looking at the classroom space, also the playground space is a whole different thing, but just reviewing what a classroom space, how it works and what it looks like and how it might be perceived to a child who may get easily overwhelmed with just sensory information, literally stripping it back to that. For me, I challenge teachers in my training to leave the training, go to their classrooms and just look at the following list of things. The colours, the lighting, is it light, is it dark, is it too bright? With the lens of a child who finds some of this stuff potentially overstimulating or understimulating, but mostly it's the overstimulating that tends to be more of an issue. Displays, are the displays in the classroom busy? I don't know about you, but I know when I started teaching, I was always encouraged to have lots of wonderful, very vibrant displays. And they they serve a purpose, don't get me wrong, but for some children, even that can be just too much walking into a room. Are there too many? Are the key messages that you want to display actually jumping out at you, or are they just lost in a busy noise on the walls? Because we can all want to get all the information up, but maybe less is more. Objects, so are things, are there lots of things lying around? Lots of things I know for my my son in particular has a massive fixation with a ball. (laughs) So if there's a ball in the classroom, you've lost him for the entire session. So just thinking about where things are, where they're placed, things that might just need to be out of sight for the duration of lessons. Noise and distractions. So again, sensory information, just thinking of all of the stuff that bombards you as you walk in or during a particular session. So are there times during the day with this one that there are noises or distractions that may be impacting? So I'd always say after lunchtime tends to be noisier in a primary classroom. There just seems to be less structured activities. So it tends to be a bit busier, a bit noisier. So it's just kind of bearing that in mind and thinking, are there ways we can minimise that more? Mm. If it's a problem for children who struggle with afternoons, why is that? It could be the noise. It's just going back to basics with sensory, like what's going on around you and how does the classroom look and feel? The layout of the classroom where children are sitting can be really key. So for children who've experienced trauma, sitting with backs to doors can be quite quite the issue. Equally, sitting facing the door can also be an issue. It's just finding the right position for a child that's maybe struggling and thinking, do they need to be nearer me so I can check in more regularly? Or are they not comfortable enough to be that close to me yet? So it's just being mindful of seating arrangements, positioning in class, layout of that classroom. And then just generally the sensory comfort. Does it feel like a welcoming space? Are there safe spaces in the classroom that a child could be taken to if they're having a tough time, if they just need a bit of quiet time to retreat to? Mm. All of those things, which sounds like a lot, but actually it doesn't take much with a little checklist to go, oh, we could do something about that or we could do something about that. So again, this is sort of quick wins or just things to consider that you might not have 
taken a step back about. <laughs> Couldn't it? I mean, just those quick wins about knowing where it's best for a child to sit to make them feel more emotionally safe in your yeah. environment so they can learn and, and get on with others and concentrate. It, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think seating position for me is one of the biggest ones out of that just getting that right and it may change throughout the year so as they get more comfortable with you less dependent on being near you so it's okay to move them back and just give it a go and if it doesn't work move them back again obviously you don't want to change things up too much throughout the year because change isn't necessarily a great thing either but just go with them be led by the pace the pace of the child and how, how they're coping really yeah but that whole facing the door thing or not or having back to the door for a child who's maybe been in a domestic violence situation where they've had threats and things coming at them from behind that's a big thing just for them to know that they can see people coming and going yeah <laughs> that whole it takes away that whole level of, of stress for them really absolutely and again it's going back to that 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 empathy isn't it so if we really know our children well and and understand you know for some children what they have been through is just phenomenal and through no fault of their own yep. if we can help them feel welcomed into a classroom if we can create a space physically emotionally that reduces that sensory overload that grounds them why wouldn't we yeah absolutely it's a case of of taking a step back sometimes and just looking at these re really simple things <laughs> and they are simple things they're yeah. not they're not resource intensive they're not you know like oh we need to get extra adults in the room to do all of this stuff we need to find a new scheme of work to do all of this stuff these are things we can do legitimately practically quite quickly we can make some changes around this so and I think sometimes we forget that this absolutely has a massive connection to to their education as well yeah. some people might say well school isn't about that but it, but actually it is because it will help children learn but fundamentally will help them to grow and develop into a more sort of resilient emotionally connected child and, and young person too yeah absolutely it's the duty of care for us really to support them to regulate to recognize when things aren't right and what can be done to support themselves to get through that because we can have all the academic knowledge in in the world we can have the best teachers in terms of giving us that knowledge but unless we have the coping skills as you said with the resilience unless we have those coping skills we're going to go out there and we're going to be the ones suffering the burnout and those all those things that come classically with people who don't have those emotional regulation skills and, and coping skills and absolutely. And I think resilience is obviously an individual attribute, but resilience is also the context. So we can create that resilience through co-regulation, through the adults, yeah. through the physical environment, through the way that we look at, at transitions and, and lack, lack of structure sometimes in the school day. Those things that will create resilience when perhaps the child hasn't necessarily got the resilience skills yet. That yeah. is resilience. We are helping them to develop that through the environment. Yeah. And I think sometimes being really overt about that is really helpful as well. You know, the modelling and the showing, well, I'm doing this too because I find this really helps. <laughs> Just yeah. being really overt about it 
they do pick up this stuff, but they pick it up even more if you point it out as you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emma, I, I'm just really grateful for you sharing uh, just a few snippets, I suppose, really, of those, those quick wins, but very much grounded in, in theory and your lived experience with your own children as well. So I think it's been really powerful to hear what schools can do. And so where can, where can people find out more about you and, and what you do? Okay, so I would always direct people to my website because that's the, the font of everything me. <laughs> it has access, you can get access to all my social media links there as well, um, and information about my training consultancy offers a blog with lots of useful resources, including some guided visualizations and useful practical things for the classroom. So do grab the freebies. But yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, that's probably the best place. So it's www.emmaspillane co.uk i'll give you that because the spelling of the name sometimes throws people so i'll give you that to add add to yeah. the information if that's okay yeah of course thank you so much really appreciate your time today thank you anna thanks for having me another podcast full of practical ideas do take a look at emma's website to find out more until next time. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information and support on this topic, go to the resources section of the website, www.halcyon.education forward slash podcasts.